0: The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's Mightiest Heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 11 of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are going to be covering Avengers number 10, The Avengers Breakup. This issue is written by Stan Lee, pencils by Don Heck, inks by Dick Ayers, letters by Sam Rosen, and it comes to us in November of 1964. So, real quick before we actually get into the episode, I owe you all an apology. I had intended to announce and take off the week following Christmas this year. Just a chance to get caught up on a few things and try and get a few uh, episodes ahead, quite honestly. Well, I did, in fact, take that week off. I just forgot to tell you guys. So I apologize for not getting the word out in episode 10. And uh, I will work to make sure this doesn't happen again, that I keep you properly informed of any any gaps in service. So please, please, please forgive me. Jumping into the issue here, we've got a pretty nice cover. I like it. The colors are nice. We get a good shot of the Avengers. We get a nice shot of a mortise which if you remember a couple issues ago was a a big complaint of mine about Kang. Wonder Man's was nice last issue. I'm pleased to see that we're keeping up with it. The other thing on the cover here is it says featuring the truly different villainy of the evil Immortus. One, that's some great scenery chewing right there. And Immortus is a good, solid scenery chewing kind of villain. However, I have a hard time agreeing with the truly different villainy part because as we know in 2017, Immortus is in fact Kang the Conqueror. And already, we will see a lot of the Kang the Conqueror time-traveling kind of tropes. So, I have a hard time saying it's different. It's interesting, it's fun, very, very Silver Age scenery-chewing, over-the-top, melodramatic villainy. Not very different, though. So the issue starts off with a superhero trope, a classic, The Training Montage. And in this particular instance, the Avengers are attempting to capture Captain America. We get several really nice panels of them attempting to do so and and eventually catching Cap. And apparently it is a new record. Cap is able to evade his fellow Avengers for 47 seconds. Cap is a little tougher on himself, though, and, and thinks he should have been able to make it a full minute. They're training completely. the Avengers sit down to have their now weekly Avengers meeting. Remember, we started off monthly, now we're, now we're up to weekly. Because the Avengers are, are fighting bigger threats, and they're having to meet more often. At least, that's my thought on that. Once again, the Democratic Avengers have a new leader... And this week it is Thor. Thor offers Giant Man a chance to talk, and he yields the floor to Iron Man, who he refers to as the Golden Avenger, which is interesting because it's been several issues since we've seen the traditional Golden Avenger armor, and I think it's interesting that Stan chooses to refer to Iron Man as such. So Iron Man has a suggestion. He thinks that they should offer Rick Jones full membership in the Avengers. Wants to make it official. Cap strongly objects, saying that the decision is only for him to make. And someone who I think is Thor off-panel agrees with Cap. And then we see Cap and Rick discussing a little afterwards. Rick is still really excited. And Cap says, you know, he's got to take some more time to think about this. He still feels really guilty over Bucky. But Cap promises to talk with Rick about it at another point in time. So I've got a couple issues here. My first issue is when Iron Man justifies offering Rick full admission onto the team, he does so by saying that we should make Rick an official member just like Wasp. And I kind of have to ask, what the hell? As much as Rick has been proving himself on the team lately, he's actually been helpful, really helped get him out of the jam with Kang the Conqueror. Rick is still just an ordinary teenager. Wasp actually has power. She's an actual superhero and legitimately belongs on the Avengers and Iron Man is really just kind of putting down her contributions and her right to be there. So that's a little bothersome to me. Wasp is an equal hero just like any of the other male Avengers and it's disappointing though not surprising to see that she's treated as such. My other issue comes from the fact that once Iron Man has suggested this, Cap objects, says it's his decision, and then someone supports him in the fact that Cap believes it's only Cap's decision. I thought the Avengers were a democratic group. So why does Cap get solo veto power over what happens to Rick? I mean, I can understand them deferring to Cap's choice, but to state that Cap gets the only choice doesn't seem to fit with the image and the ideals that the team has put forth so far. I've also gotten to a point where I think Cap really needs to make a decision about Rick. Now, I know he's not going to, not just in this issue, but for a while... But, you know, we're at a point where Cap's really just kind of stringing this kid along, whether he intends to or not. You know, Rick really wants to be a full-fledged Avenger, and he's working very hard towards being one. So if you're not going to let him, you need to let the kid know. You know, he's got his hopes up, and he's trying, and if he doesn't have a shot, it's kind of messed up to string him along like this. Our heroes are apparently though not the only ones who have meetings and we quickly cut to the masters of evil having a similar kind of meeting but with a much different tone. Zemo starts off by making a general, you know, villain speech. I won't rest until I've defeated the Avengers. And then Executioner goes off and starts talking if only he and Enchantress had their powers. And then Zemo pretty quickly cuts him off. And I got to give Zemo some credit for this. Zemo basically tells Executioner, look, you need to stop dwelling on the what if. We're not dealing with what if. We need to deal with reality. Of course, after that, Zemo starts going on about how they need another powerful ally to which Enchantress throws it back in his face and says, we tried that last issue. It didn't go so well for us. However, Enchantress is interrupted in her berating of Zemo by a powerful mental probe, she says, and we find out that it is Immortus, and he appears before the, the Masters of Evil inside Zemo's fortified castle in the jungle, and it appears that one of the Masters, I'm guessing Executioner or Enchantress, just because this doesn't really seem like Zemo's area of expertise, recognizes Immortus as the master of time, the one who rules the mystic realm of limbo where things never change. Now, once again, this is not the limbo that is ruled by Ilyana Rasputin later on in X-Men. It does, however, appear to be the same Limbo that the Space Phantom sent his victims to. If not, that means we have a third version of Marvel Limbo running around, and very quickly, I think we're gonna start running out of space. Now, being a Silver Age villain, Immortus decides to do a little scenery chewing and threatens Zemo and Executioner, saying that one day he's going to claim this century and he will permit them to serve as his underlings. Obviously, our masters don't take very kindly to this, and Executioner immediately attacks. Immortus, who vanishes, and then replaces himself with, well, kind of an interesting choice here. So Immortus says he shall send another to battle in his stead, for he has all of the warriors of the ages to choose from. Again, because he's also a future version of Kang the Conqueror, time travels really his bread and butter, so that makes sense. However, Immortus' choice of warriors is questionable at best. He picks Paul Bunyan, the giant from American mythology. The entirety of all of world history to choose a warrior from. And he picks a fictitious person who's not actually a warrior. A fighter a little bit? Maybe some there. But a warrior? Now, admittedly, we do get a fairly amusing fight between this giant-sized... Paul Bunyan and Executioner. At one point, Bunyan decides to swat Executioner like a fly, and we've got a great panel of Executioner like nearly spread eagle using his entire body to try and stop Paul Bunyan from pushing him aside. It is completely and utterly futile. Unfortunately, you guys can't see it. I'm actually acting out what's going on here. It's kind of not one of my better choices, audio podcast and what all, but I I just had fun with it. Eventually Immortus stops Paul Bunyan because Zemo starts whining about nearly destroying his castle. And then we get a weird kind of turning of the tables here. So to start with, Immortus really feels like he's the one in control. He appears in Zemo's castle. When Executioner tries to fight him, Immortus is the one who sets the terms. And then, as soon as the fight stops, Zemo's the one who starts setting the terms. And he demands that, in addition to having just proved his strength, Immortus has to prove his loyalty by destroying one of the Avengers. Now, Amortis agrees, and this really even plays into what Amortis wants, but I think it's just an odd choice that someone who is very much in control to start this and has done nothing to lose control so willingly submits to Zemo's authority. Now, Zemo here, honestly, is making a really good play. Executioner says that he doesn't understand what's going on, why Zemo would want to do this. And Zemo says, what does it matter? This time we risk nothing. If he fails, we are no worse off. But if he succeeds, we've lost an enemy. Zemo is on point. Especially after the last couple of times where the Masters have just gotten hammered. Uh, quite literally, in, in some cases, thanks to Thor. Zemo's really onto to something here when he wants to let someone else fight their fights. Next, we're going to go ahead and cut back to New York, where we find Rick Jones talking with some of his Teen Brigade friends. And one of them says, hey, have you checked out this new comic? There's a really cool ad in the back for superpowers. And Rick, having just gotten shot down by Cap again, goes, this is my chance. If I had powers, they'd have to let me in. And so instead of sending off the coupon like most people would, Rick decides that he is going to show up at the office for this ad and get the superpowers as quick as he can. And he shows up, and here's a mortise with Attila the Hun, and they capture Rick and take him to 1760 England and put him in the Tower of London. This is a really complicated plot just to get Rick Jones to show up at the office. First, they've got to come up with this ad, then they've got to get it printed in a comic book, then they've got to get the comic to Rick, then Rick has to not follow the directions for the ad, but instead show up at the office, and then you're going to grab him with Attila the Hun and take him to the past. I feel like there is an easier way to accomplish this. Now, again, we are in the Silver Age. There are times the Silver Age gets just straight up silly. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you walk into the issue knowing either A, straight up that it is, or at least that it's a possibility. This is definitely one of those issues where you need to be prepared for the possibility because we are going to be doing all kinds of time travel, which is always fun, and we're going to be fighting all kinds of historic or historically fictional characters. It's a lot of fun, but if you overthink this one, you're just going to hate it. Of course, you know, it's just caps lock that. Right when Rick gets kidnapped, is when Cap wants to talk to Rick. Cap promised Rick that they would talk later, and Cap goes looking for him, can't find him, so he contacts the Teen Brigade. Teen Brigade says, Well, last time we saw him, he was gonna go talk to these guys about getting superpowers, and Cap's like, Ah, that can't be good. So immediately, Cap runs off to the address where this ad is from, and of course, waiting is Immortus. I would also like to note with a change of office furniture, before he just had like a fancy desk and like a nice office chair now he's got a legitimate throne it's kind of a pinkish purple but it's a throne it's a better throne than i have because i don't have one cap immediately demands to know what amortis has done with rick and he says don't worry the boy's fine the avengers told me exactly what to do they said it would be the best way to control you I don't know if Cap, like, 100% believes Immortus, but I'm a little disappointed at the amount of faith Cap puts in Immortus's lies. Obviously, we know they are lies. And yeah, Cap might be a little frustrated with the Avengers for being a little pushy with Rick at this point, but they've been fighting together for at least a little while now, and I have a hard time believing that Cap would automatically assume that when someone tells him the Avengers are doing something to control him, that that's on the up and up. Of course, because Cap does believe Immortus, we immediately then cut to Cap back at Avengers Mansion confronting his fellow Avengers. And this is really kind of an interesting perversion of the opening training montage. The other Avengers are trying to capture Cap again and calm him down and find out what the hell's going on, because they honestly don't have any clue. But before, Cap was making a valiant effort to not be caught, but he was still... Working within acceptable limits for a training exercise. In this case, because he thinks Rick's life is at stake, Cap really pulls out all the stops and is fighting with utter abandon. And the Avengers are having a significantly more difficult time dealing with Cap. Also, interestingly enough, at one point in the fight, Giant Man steps in between Cap and Thor, trying to de escalate the situation. Up until now, that's really not been Giant Man's role. If anything, Giant Man has tended to be the very impulsive, impatient person who has inadvertently escalated conflicts. Again, we look back to when they were fighting Kang the Conqueror. Kang was giving this explanation of his backstory. And what does Giant Man do? Giant Man grabs Kang because he's tired of the story. It's an interesting character moment i don't want to say it's out of character because i mean hank pym is a man of science so he has that analytical mind in him that mind that can push for something like that we just don't tend to see it as often he tends to be the impulsive person i mean we know in the future that we will see giant man having a lot of anger management problems so i think it's an interesting choice but i don't think it's an out of character choice Eventually, the Avengers agree to go with Captain America back to Immortus' office and get the whole thing straightened out. Because, again... They honestly don't know what's going on. Something's obviously wrong. Cap is very, very, very upset and spun up. And they they just want to get a, a solution to the problem. So the Avengers go back to Immortus. And now, every time they show back up, it gets better. Immortus, he's on the throne. The throne is now raised up a bit. And there is smoke. Like, amazing theatrical smoke just pouring in, really helping to set the ambiance. I mean, again, I mentioned this earlier, Immortus is is a very Silver Age, scenery-chewing kind of villain. He's not Zemo, he's not Magneto, but he's still a lot of fun. So, Immortus offers the Avengers a deal. Immortus demands that before he releases Rick, the Avengers each fight a specially selected foe from the past, each of which has a greater power than the Avenger. They're specifically chosen to fight. And, of course... You know, the Avengers wanting to get Rick back, agree to it. Although, admittedly, Immortus doesn't really give him an option. He says, hey, here's my deal, fight. Before he's even really finished giving them the deal, the first challenger has already appeared. And the first challenger is for Giant Man, and it is the Philistine Goliath. This is a fun fight. This one, I I, I think of the three, I enjoy the most because these two are the most closely matched and it allows the giant man to not only use his strength, but use his brains. Again, super scientist here, in addition to being Ant-Man, Giant-Man, At least in the Avengers, I don't think we see enough of Giant Man really using his brains. Like we talked about, he's the impulsive one. He tends to be the one who inadvertently escalates things. And in this fight, he gets to actually think a little bit. Now, the end of the fight bugs me some, and this is kind of where the issue starts coming off the rails a little bit. We have some jumps in the sequential storytelling. We're getting a good fight between them. We get some Ant-Man shrinking. And then, as Ant-Man, Pym goes to shoot himself at Goliath, much like David did with his sling. My problem here is that the slingshot panel requires a little more setup than we're given, The lead into this panel, Goliath is about to squish Ant-Man. He manages to get away. And then the very next panel, he's in an air duct with a piece of rubber nailed across the front. And he's pulling it back like a slingshot. How did he get up there? How did he set up the equipment? There are a lot of questions here that really have not been answered. And I don't like I don't need a perfect 100%. Yeah, you see him hammering in the nail, and, but like we go from absolutely no inkling of this being a thing to him then using it immediately to defeat Goliath. So that's our first matchup. Our second matchup is by far the dumbest, and it is Iron Man versus Merlin the magician. And again, I would like to point out that Immortus claims he can pull anyone from history. And he's pulled Paul Bunyan and Merlin. Two individuals we know to be completely fictitious. I get the idea that they're just trying to pull recognizable names to preteens, early young teenagers in the 1960s. But I've gotta believe that there are better ones than Merlin and Paul Bunyan. Now, the fight between Iron Man and Merlin, it's okay. Merlin traps Iron Man in in a cage. Iron Man frees himself. Merlin tries to shoot him with a bolt of lightning. You know, it's kind of standard stuff. But then Iron Man does something that I kind of think is cool. Is that he uses a light and sound weapon to incapacitate Merlin. And I like this for a couple of reasons. One, it's something different. It's something practical. It's non-lethal. I used to watch a lot of history channel and military channel kind of stuff. And every so often you would see, you know, shows that talk about like non-lethal weapons that different companies were working on. And you'd occasionally see something like this. You know, it would flash some kind of strobe and it would be this really obnoxious sound that would incapacitate people. Tony Stark is a weapons manufacturer, and again, as a superhero who doesn't kill, I think this is a perfect weapon. And I don't know how often we're going to see this, but I would like to see more of it being used. I think my only complaint with it is that Iron Man's protected because he's got his armor. Nobody else has armor, nobody else should be protected, but the only one affected is Merlin. Admittedly, it's a small flaw. So our third matchup, certainly not my favorite. Again, my favorite, I think, is still Goliath and Giant Man. This is probably the most fitting matchup in that it is Thor versus Hercules. Now, this is not going to be the same Hercules that we will see later in the Marvel comics. This is ostensibly a different Hercules, but the rivalry is still there. You get Hercules and Thor wrestling for a minute, and eventually Thor basically throws Hercules out of a window and catches him just in time to prevent him from falling to his death. I think my only issue with this fight is that Thor is ostensibly still a god, and Hercules is at best a demigod. So this should be a fight that Thor wins without really any question, and admittedly he does, but Amortis specifically says in the beginning that he has picked people who are stronger than the Avengers. And in two of the three cases... I can buy it. You know, Goliath is dumb, so he gets beaten. Merlin is unprepared for technology, so he's beaten. But Hercules should not have beaten Thor. That's just not a thing. At this point, Immortus is 0-3, and and he says, screw this, I'm out of here. And so he grabs Cap and takes Cap back in time to 1760. Immortus then promises Cap that if he can get through the guards, if he can get to Rick, that he and Rick will be transported back to their own time. So now we see Cap fighting a whole bunch of English guards who are horribly anachronistic for their time. Again, keeping in mind, 1760, that's close to the American Revolution, right? Close to that colonial period. So that's what the guards should look like. Instead, Cap is fighting crusaders. Like, no kidding, crusaders with crosses on their shields and the whole nine yards. It's ridiculous. And again, I mean, the issue is just slowly, slowly declining into dumber and dumber and dumber and dumber and dumber. It's unfortunate, but we have not yet hit rock bottom. So while all of this has been going on, the Masters of Evil have been watching, and they realize that, hey, the Avengers are down a man. Let's get They're still in South America, so they jump into one of Zemo's jet planes, and they hightail it to New York, where they find the Avengers sitting around trying to figure out what they're going to do about Cap. I love this, because Executioner punches down the door and then does a flying tackle at Iron Man's head. As much as Executioner's not really the thinking kind, this dude commits. Like, when he decides to go for something, he goes all out. And it's a great panel of him flying through the air with Iron Man's head in his hands. And you're just going, oh, oh, this is not going to go well for Iron Man at all. And it doesn't really go very well. Now, it could have gone worse, except for the fact that Baron Zemo suggests the worst plan in the history of supervillainy. And that plan is, hey guys, let's single up and fight each one of them individually. So, Executioner takes Iron Man, Enchantress takes Giant Man, and Zemo takes Thor. Now, admittedly, we know that Executioner is not going to fight Thor very well because we've seen it happen and Executioner usually loses. Executioner taking Iron Man, probably a good call. Enchantress taking Giant Man. She doesn't really do all that much. She just kind of puts him under a spell and makes him shrink and and be useless. Zemo taking on Thor is probably the worst idea. Zemo has a gun that shoots liquid ore, and that's all he's got going for him. The gun's kind of cool. It shoots this liquid ore stuff that when it comes in contact with living flesh, it turns into solid stone but you're doing this to the physically strongest Avenger, the one who is most likely able to break out of it. Zemo claims it's unbreakable, but we know it's not gonna be unbreakable. Mostly because it's stone, but also because this is a comic book. It just seems like a bad call for Zemo to claim the strongest member of the team. If anything, they should have taken out the other three Avengers and then triple teamed Thor. Like that would have been the best way to go about doing things. So like I just said, Executioner really does a number on Iron Man. He dents Iron Man's chest piece. He somehow knocks out Iron Man's repulsors. Iron Man is trying to figure out what the hell happened. Executioner then destroys his control panel. Executioner's really just working Iron Man over. Zemo is about to turn Thor into a complete statue, not just his arms. And then Zemo starts monologuing. For, for those of you who have not seen the incredibles first off you you should go and see it because it is a it's a wonderfully done movie and it's also just it's great superhero it really gets to what i think is kind of the core of superheroes and really has fun and plays with the genre but there's a point in that film actually several times where the heroes talk about the villains monologuing when they've got them cornered and they're about ready to kill the hero and then they start delivering a speech. And that's exactly what Baron Zemo does right here. All he has to do is squeeze this trigger, and he starts talking. And of course, like any good monologuing session, this goes horribly for Zemo in that who should show up but Captain America and Rick Jones. Mostly Captain America, but Ricky's there too. Cap immediately jumps in the fight, makes fairly quick work of executioner, destroys Zemo's gun. Wasp manages to uh, distract Enchantress enough to allow Giant Man to regain control of his size in a rather disappointing version of Tell Not Show. And then, of course, Thor breaks out of the rock because it's not unbreakable, no matter what Zemo says. So at this point, we now have All of the Avengers ready to fight our standard three Masters of Evil. And the Masters of Evil know how this is going to go. Because it's happened before, and they get their butts handed to them. That's what's going to happen. So instead, Enchantress casts a spell and takes the Masters of Evil back in time a couple of days. So that none of this ever happened. And we cut back to the Avengers having their weekly meeting. And the Masters of Evil are once again complaining... Enchantress is contacted by Immortus, only this time she's prepared and breaks off contact, and this all never happens. What the hell? So we're we're 11 issues in, and there are going to be bad comics, but 11 episodes in, this is by far the worst ending we have had. This is an absolutely terrible ending. We're just going to go and pretend like none of this ever happened. It is so frustrating to me when anything does this. A movie, a book, a comic, anything. I spent 20 to 30 minutes reading this book. I'm a slow reader and The Silver Age is wordy. So I take 20 to 30 minutes to read an issue. You're just telling me that I wasted 20 to 30 minutes of my life and we didn't move the story forward. We didn't move the characters forward any. We had some nice moments there and they don't count. Oh, that is just so irritating. Oh, I'm sorry, folks. It just, it's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, but it also strikes me to a large extent as, you know, just weak storytelling. I think there are a lot of other ways that the Masters of Evil could have escaped, that we could have gotten around this, and instead we just undo everything we've just done. So overall, we talked about this briefly, the Silver Age can be profoundly silly. And while it is often not what I personally am looking for in a comic, if I know what I'm getting myself into, it can be a lot of fun, right? These are lighthearted books. There aren't huge consequences. This is not The Dark Knight Returns, which is one of my favorite books, but it's not a book for every day. It's not what I want all the time. Here in the Silver Age, you get a very clear definition. Good is good, evil is evil, and things tend to get wrapped up pretty neatly by the end of the issue. I'm not jumping into a 12-issue arc here. If I've only got 20 minutes of time, then I can crank out this issue and I get a self-contained story. Now, you know, frequently there are references back to things that have happened in the past or there will be set up for things that happen in the future. But if I don't want to dig into those things, I don't have to. I can just enjoy this book for what it is. And, you know, there's also something to be said for the level of melodrama. It's a lot of fun. Like I said, you get the scenery-chewing villains. They're just so over-the-top. Executioner is just so committed at times. It makes for a really great execution. No pun intended there. Of course, as I just kind of went off a minute ago here, the end of this issue really kind of turns into utter garbage, unfortunately. The storytelling... Through the art, really falls apart because they're trying to cram so much storytelling into such a short amount of time. Again, I am, you know, this is complete supposition here, but it really feels like they got to the end, realized they were at the end of the page count, and You know, had a page and a half to wrap up everything. And I I hate when that happens. As far as the art overall goes, it is not as good or as bad as the last issue. Right, the last issue had a significant number of very, very, very strong panels or sequence of panels. This book has some strong panels, but nowhere near as many. But at the same time, it does not suffer from the same layout problems, and the overall quality of the art is better. I'm just looking at this last page. We talked about, you know, the nine-panel grid not working out in the last issue. The last page here is a nine-panel grid, and it's not great. It's not amazing, but it is significantly better than what we saw in the last issue. And for that, I've got to give Heck credit. Like I said, we don't get the standout panels like we did before, but the overall consistency of the art is improved. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you'd like to be a part of the conversation, send your questions or comments to Andrew at AvengersAssembly.com. Next week, we'll be taking a field trip over to X-Men with Enter the Avengers in X-Men number nine. All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Uh, Let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day you ever tried shawarma? there's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here I don't know what it is but I want to try it